You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. Journey to Islam A series of autobiographical stories told by converts who have discovered Islam the Siratim Mustaqim Brothers sisters and friends salam alaikum 9/11 I bet every single one of you in here tonight can remember exactly where you were who you were with what you were doing when the events of 9/11 unfolded um, on our TV screens I was working in the Sunday Express building and I noticed that a lot of people were gathering around the many television sets in the newsroom and I shouted over and said what's going on and somebody said there's been a terrible accident somebody has flown a plane into the twin towers and there's something that uh, is quite horrific about breaking news but also very compelling and I went and joined the crowd and watched this dramatic scene unfold on the television and just then a second plane came into view and slammed into the second twin tower having spoken to members of the muslim community since that event i know that many of you prayed at that split second please don't let this be the act of muslims at that moment when i saw it happen i thought wow this is a huge huge story bigger than the assassination of jfk i have to get out to new york and so i headed for heathrow by the time i got to heathrow airport with um, an overnight bag the twin towers had imploded the pentagon had been hit and another plane had come down in another area and america was under siege she closed off her borders and her airspace there was actually no way that i could get into america either through canada or through mexico i tried every single route possible the whole country was simply shut down and when the airspace was finally opened i was there almost first in the queue and i made my way towards the departure lounge when my mobile phone went off and it was my news editor and he said cancel new york we want you to go to islamabad george w bush had seized upon the opportunity to um focus his attention on afghanistan he was saying hand over Osama bin Laden otherwise we will launch a war and tony blair his um willing puppet was um saying similar things in london i arrived in islamabad and for the next week spent time accustom uh, accustoming myself to the area speaking to local politicians and and coming up with um features about how neighboring pakistan felt about the prospect of the richest most powerful country in the world bombing the poorest country in the world by the end of that first week more than 3000 journalists from around the world had gathered in pakistan from radio tv magazines newspapers everybody was there and everybody was looking for their own story many journalists do not like to be spoon-fed from the white house or downing street or any other government department and i count myself in that category and i decided that the best story to be had was inside afghanistan talking to ordinary people about their hopes and fears for the war and so i made a decision to try and get into afghanistan I went to the Afghan embassy 3 times and 3 times filled out forms for a visa and 3 times I was refused. On top of that the ruling Taliban had kicked out all of the western journalists which was a very short-sighted thing to do. I'm sure you've all got your own views about journalists and um 
you know, we are a necessary evil. Um, we are the, the eyes, the ears, the, the witness on the ground. And if journalists are not on the ground witnessing horrific events, then people in powerful places who do terrible things will seize on the opportunity to do that, which is exactly what America and Britain did when they bombed civilian areas in Afghanistan without it becoming common knowledge in the Western media for some time. But that, um, that's way ahead. So I was very determined to get into Afghanistan and the guide that I ha had said that uh, you know, we should uh, try and sneak over and um, all I would have to do is put on this uh, all enveloping blue burqa and I would become invisible. And funnily enough, that evening, the gargantuan BBC journalist John Simpson did exactly that. I have to say, I'm not entirely certain how far into Afghanistan he went. And while I'm a big fan of his, I think he sold himself short because the story was basically, look at me, John Simpson in a burqa in Afghanistan. And it was in the pitch black, as I say, it could have been in someone's garage, but he said he was in <laughs> Afghanistan. And I thought, well, if John Simpson can disappear under a burqa, then surely I can. And so two days later, we tested out the reality of the Simpson exercise. And we drove through the Khyber Pass, which is more than 30 miles of dramatic winding roads and, and um, quite amazing and, and a great scene setter for what I was about to do. And we arrived into this dust bowl of an area called Tolkien and part of it was in Pakistan, the other side was Afghanistan. I was wearing my burqa and I followed my two guides. We were with a family and our cover story was that we were going for a wedding. If anybody was to stop me, they would say she's deaf and dumb. And so we walked over the border, across no man's land. And as I saw the Taliban checkpoint looming, I thought, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea after all. And I had gone beyond the point of no return. And I can remember my palms feeling really wet, my mouth very dry, and I could hear my heart thumping between my ears, a noise I was certain that the Taliban checkpoint would pick up. But it was exactly as John Simpson had described, I had become invisible. I think I was a cross on someone's ID papers, and we went through. And of course, the Taliban um, had been described by George Bush and Tony Blair as the most brutal, <coughs> evil regime in the world, very misogynistic. Um, they uh, brutalized their women. And so I wanted to find out for myself if this was true. When I got to Jalalabad, I was pleasantly surprised because I walked into the marketplace and all the shopping was being done by men. And I thought, this is wonderful. You know, this is uh, quite amazing. I sat on the edge of the marketplace while um, life was unfolding. And of course, as I said before, the richest country in the world was about to bomb the poorest country. And yet, um, people, the, the men were laughing and joking, and there were lots of uh, Taliban soldiers strutting around with their Kalashnikovs and, and certainly showing absolutely no fear at all that, um, that America was about to go to war with them. We then got our provisions and went to visit a village that um, one of my guides came from. And we entered the village, and... He told his family that he had brought a Westerner, a journalist, into their midst who wanted to write a humanitarian report. Uh, they were not very happy, I could tell by the expression on their faces, and they gave me a wide berth. But very soon, um, the natural uh, exuberance and hospitality of the Afghan nature broke through, and they started talking to me. The first person who spoke to me was a, a young girl, about 22, and she said, you know, my country is about to go to war, 
I should be qualifying as a doctor now, but when the Taliban took over, they closed down the medical school where I was training, and now I'm sitting, rotting away in this village. And I felt very, very sorry for her. You know, here was already an example of a woman who was being denied her ambitions and career opportunity. And interestingly enough, her elder brother came in and he said, you know, I should be qualified as a doctor too, but when the medical facility closed down, I was also sent home. So it was quite interesting that um, men as well as women were being affected by the closure of these institutions, which I was told was also being done on a financial basis because the country was crippled with famine, drought, and two decades of war. As I was talking to them, this larger-than-life lady walked into the room and she put her hand on her hips and she looked me up and down and she said, have you got any children? And I said, yes, I have a daughter. And she said, only one. And I said, yes. And she pushed me. I mean, she was just jokingly, but she was very strong and, and sent me flying. <laughs> And she said, you English and American women, you are all so pathetic. All you can ever manage is one, maybe two children. She said, me, I can have 15. And when you run out of your boy soldiers, I will be producing more. And then I said, you know, aren't you afraid of the American soldiers coming to your village? And she pointed over at a big pile of pots and pans and she said, dare one American come in this village and I myself will fight him off with those pots and pans. And I thought she means it and she, you know, she's terrifying me. So um, I would imagine that she'd be quite a formidable opponent, which again lays waste to the myth that Afghan women are shy, timid creatures. After spending an afternoon there, I noticed that a few of the neighbours were beginning to become curious and came round to see this Westerner, and of course it was a time of impending war, and so we decided that we should really cut short our trip and get back to Pakistan. Unfortunately, the border was closed that night, and no one was getting in or out. But actually, it was pretty pointless because along Pakistan's 1,400-mile border, there are more than two to 300 smuggling routes. And one of my guides said, do you want to go through a smuggling route? And I thought, oh, this sounds exciting. You know, I'll be diving around these narrow mountain passes, jumping from tree to tree. It will add to my color feature, and it will uh, make a great read. And I said, yes, I'd uh, love to go through the, um, the smuggling route. I was complaining about the Afghan footwear I had been wearing and my feet were cut and blistered and one of my guides said, would you like to make the final stage of the journey by donkey? And I looked at these little creatures and I thought, well, you know, I can ride a horse. It looks more or less the same shape. It's got four legs and, and um, it should in fact be easier. And I can tell by the smiles on a few people in here that they know what's coming next because, of course, the donkey is nothing like a horse. And when I got on the back of this particular animal, I don't know whether it sensed it had an infidel on its back or what, but it just bolted. I was screaming out, trying to get hold of the reins. The wind started billowing through the burqa, and I was um, I must have looked quite an extraordinary sight as... Um, I was hurtling along on the back of a donkey. As I was trying to get hold of the reins, the one piece of equipment that I had taken into Afghanistan, a camera, slipped out from the folds of my burqa. Now cameras were banned under the Taliban. And just at the moment that it slipped out, a Taliban soldier was walking past and he started screaming and shouting. In truth, I can't remember at that point whether I fell off the donkey, whether it threw me off, whether it stopped suddenly, or whether the soldier pulled me off. All I remember was picking myself up off the ground and looking straight into the eyes of this Taliban soldier who was screaming and shouting at me. I 
couldn't understand a word he was saying. It was quite clear he wanted the camera, and so I handed him the camera, and I closed my eyes, waiting to be shot in the head. And when I opened my eyes again, the soldier had gone. He'd gone marching off in the direction of the man who hired the donkeys. Well, I don't know whether he hired or sold them, and I never worked out how he was going to get my donkey back, but he went off in that direction. And I thought, this is great. He doesn't realize that I'm a Westerner. And I noticed the other section of our party heading towards the Pakistan border, and I went to follow them, thinking I'm going to get away. I then looked back, and by this time, the man who had the donkeys had pointed in the direction of one of my guides who'd paid for the donkey. And the soldier went over and he smacked the guide across the face and waved the camera in his face. Another guide went to try and cool down the situation. And within seconds, a crowd of very angry men had gathered round and everybody was shouting and waving their arms. And I realized at that point I couldn't leave my guides behind. So I walked back and tried to push my way through this crowd of very angry men. And I was slung back. This was man's business. It had nothing whatsoever to do with a woman. And I realized that the only way that I could get through to this crowd was by removing my burqa. And so I took off my and said in a very loud voice, well, someone let me through. You could have heard a pin drop. And then there was an opening just like the Red Sea, and I walked forwards towards the Taliban soldier. And I went over and I thought, he's going to be so happy to have got his hands on a Westerner, he'll completely forget about my two guides. And I looked in their direction, and then I saw from the sheer horror and expression on their faces that this was not such a cunning plan after all. Too late. I went and demanded the return of my camera, and within seconds, the three of us were frog-marched off and put into a car and driven off in the direction of Jalalabad. As we were making the journey, the driver and the soldier kept having a heated exchange and looked back at me and heated exchanges and, and there was something about me that they were very unhappy about. And um, suddenly the driver made like an emergency stop. The soldier got out and he ordered me out of the car. He then motioned for me to stand on a raised piece of ground and then he went off to my left somewhere. And I stood there on this, this piece of ground and I looked around. And all I could see were stones and pebbles and rocks. And I thought, oh my God, it's the stoning corner. He's gone off. He's gone off to get a crowd to say, hey, we've got a Westerner. You know, we'll have stoning in 10 minutes time. <laughs> And I stood there frozen, thinking this was going to be the place where I was going to die. And I looked down, and all I could see staring up was blood-red nail varnish. I must have lost my shoes and socks in the melee. And I thought, nail varnish is banned under the Taliban. If they see these nails, they'll cut them off one by one. So I'm trying to hide my nails. Within a few minutes, a crowd of men had gathered round about 80, and they all looked very angry. They all had magnificent beards, and they were getting closer and closer. And I thought, they're getting closer and closer, so when the stoning starts, they can take a good aim. <laughs> of course, in their, under that regime, uh, they didn't see women's faces other than a wife or a mother or a close female relative. So I guess seeing me was like seeing a panda in the zoo for the first time. So they were getting closer to have a good look, but I didn't realize that. And I stood there thinking that the final seconds of my life were drifting away. And I really thought, you know, that my final seconds were being 
lived out, and suddenly, from the left, the Taliban soldier returned with another lady wearing a burqa. And she came from behind me and swung me round and started to frisk me. And I suddenly realized, oh, they're not going to kill me after all. Well, not immediately. They just need to check and make sure that I'm not carrying any weapons or bombs or anything like that. And the fear that had gone through me was just swept by with overwhelming relief. And then I felt really angry. Those men had made me feel as though I was going to die, as though I was going to be stoned. I was praying to God, let the first stone knock me out. And the relief was taken over by anger. And I swung back round at the men. And I have to say at this point, I was wearing an Afghan dress and trousers like a shalwa kameez. And I swung back round at the men and said very angrily, I am not carrying any weapons. And then I lifted up the hem of my skirt and went, look. There was one collective sharp intake of breath. They turned round and ran as though the devil was snapping at their heels. Of course, this was highly inappropriate behavior for a woman in Afghanistan. And the lady in the burqa turned me around and smacked me right across the face. I think she was in quite a state of shock. I was then put back in the car and driven off towards Jalalabad. I was taken into this rather grand building which turned out to be ex-King Shah's Winter Palace, which was the intelligence headquarters and the head of intelligence met me and I apologized for causing any um, inconvenience and I said I need to use the telephone and he said we need to know who you are first and so I filled out a piece of paper with my name and address and work numbers and as much ID as I could and gave it to him and then he said we're just about to eat of course in there under that regime uh, they didn't see women's faces other than a wife or a mother or a close female relative so i guess seeing me was like seeing a panda in the zoo for the first time so they were getting closer to have a good look but i didn't realize that and i stood there thinking that the final seconds of my life were drifting away and I really thought you know that my final seconds were being lived out and suddenly from the left the Taliban soldier returned with another lady wearing a burqa and she came from behind me and swung me round and started to frisk me and I suddenly realized oh they're not going to kill me after all. Well, not immediately. They just need to check and make sure that I'm not carrying any weapons or bombs or anything like that. And the fear that had gone through me was just swept by with overwhelming relief. And then I felt really angry. Those men had made me feel as though I was going to die, as though I was going to be stoned. I was praying to God, let the first stone knock me out. And the relief was taken over by anger and I swung back round at the men and I have to say at this point I was wearing an Afghan dress and trousers like a shalwa kameez and I swung back round at the men and said very angrily I am not carrying any weapons and then I lifted up the hem of my skirt and went look <laughs> There was one collective sharp intake of breath. They turned round and ran as though the devil was snapping at their heels. Of course, this was highly inappropriate behavior for a woman in Afghanistan. And the lady in the burqa turned me round and smacked me right across the face. I think she was in quite a state of shock. I was then put back in the car and driven off towards Jalalabad. I was taken into this rather grand building which turned out to be ex-King Shah's Winter Palace, which was the intelligence headquarters. And the head of intelligence met me and I apologized for causing any um, inconvenience 
And I said, I need to use the telephone. And he said, we need to know who you are first. And so I filled out a piece of paper with my name and address and work numbers and as much ID as I could and gave it to him. And then he said, we're just about to eat and you must join us. And I said, well, you know, I really need to make this phone call first. And he said, no, you can't make a phone call. So I said, well, until I can make that phone call, I will not eat. I will neither eat as a guest or a prisoner of the Taliban. And he looked at me and seemed quite unconcerned at first. I was then taken to a room which had a beautiful Afghan rug and some cushions in it and, and air conditioning and a view out onto a beautiful garden. As I say, I had no idea at that point that I was in a palace. But um, I remained in that room for the next few days. Now, you would think that the most evil, brutal regime in the world couldn't care less if I went on hunger strike, but it really upset them. By the end of the first day, they brought in the cook, a tiny little man, and although he couldn't speak English, um, they spoke in Pashto and through a translator and said, tell this man why you won't eat his food and he was pleading with me to eat his food and I said look tell him it's nothing personal but I need to use the telephone <laughs> by the second day they said we know why you won't eat our food it's very poor humble food you will be used to hotel food we will bring you hotel food and I said no you know give me the telephone and then I will start eating and they said no, so I said, well, forget your food, hotel, or otherwise. On the third day, the most evil, brutal regime in the world said, we will give you wine, if only you will start eating. And I thought, what's going on here? Don't they know they're supposed to be the most evil, brutal regime in the world? You know, they're not living up to the job description. And even though I went on this hunger strike every morning, noon and night. They would come in, they would lay out a cloth, they would put out food, they would bring in a jug of water and a bowl and they would wash my hands and tell me, you are our sister, you are our guest, we want you to be happy. And this totally confused me because this was not how I expected them to behave. On the Wednesday, or the, I think it was the third day, I was visited by the doctor. I hadn't asked for the doctor, but it was the third evening, and um, I was feeling quite fine because I was able to drink lots of green tea, even though I wasn't eating. And as soon as they found out I smoked, they brought me lots of cigarettes, even though cigarettes were banned. They only got annoyed when I kept flicking my ash into the spittoon. And so the doctor came and he had a look at my eyes, my ears, and my mouth, took my pulse. And I thought, they do this, don't they, on death row? Just before they're going to execute somebody, they like to make sure that they are fit and healthy. And he took my blood pressure and he took it again. And I said, yes, I know I have high blood pressure. And he said, no, your blood pressure is normal. I said, don't be so ridiculous. It can't possibly be normal. You know, um, I'm, I've been captured, I'm stuck here. I said, it must be through the roof. And he said, it's normal. And he took my blood pressure again and showed me the monitor. And I said, well, I said, that's incredible. Three days with the Taliban and you've cured my blood pressure. Thank you very much. <laughs> Two days later, the translator, the Taliban translator, a young man called Hamid, came rushing in with the local Jalalabad newspaper. And although photographs were banned, there were two photographs of me on the front page with a headline which went down three decks and went right across the page. It was nearly longer than the story itself. And I said, what does the headline say? And he said, the headline says, the Taliban have cured Yvonne Ridley's blood pressure and she's very happy. <laughs> so they had their own spin doctrine then at, at that stage. During those... Six days, I was questioned by a group of men. The, the group would ch interact or change um, daily, and they were all fearsome-looking men. 
And they all wanted to know, who is your father? Who is your father's father? And so the questioning went on. That was about the, the level of the initial questioning. I had decided early on um, in my capture to be the prisoner from hell because I felt that if I act in a way that they don't expect their women to act, then they might treat me differently. And so I was quite rude and obnoxious and aggressive. And the harder I was, the nicer they became. And I thought, what's going on here? And I kept thinking, you know, although it, it, uh, we've had a good laugh so far, um, I kept thinking, yeah, these are the good guys, but any minute now, the bad guys are going to come in with the electrodes, they're, they're going to do horrible things. And, and um, so every day, was a terrifying experience for me because I simply didn't know whether it was going to be my last day on earth or not. On the sixth day, Hamid came and, and knocked at my door. I had the key, although I was the prisoner. And uh, he asked if he could come in and his face was almost black with fear and he could hardly talk. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, you have a very, very important visitor. Will you please be nice? Will you please be respectful? Please, you know, behave yourself and, and don't be so hostile. And I was saying, well, who is it? He said, just wait and see. And I'm thinking, is it Mullah Omar? Who is it? And he's just, please be respectful. He went off and a few minutes later, there was the customary knock on the door and I opened the door and Hamid moved aside and my heart just about stopped and I went cold with fear at the sight of this man in front of me. He was a Milana. I had spent six days avoiding talking about religion and there in front of me was a Taliban cleric. I was terrified. He had a long ivory gown. Everything in Afghanistan is dirty, ripped, torn, dusty, and there was this immaculate ivory white gown which went right down to the floor. He had this large ivory turban and a very modest beard by Afghan standards. And he had this very serene smile on his face and some beads in his hand which he moved two at a time. And there was something else that was weird about him. And the first time I mentioned this feature to a Muslim group, some sisters went, alhamdulillah, when I told them. I said, there was something really spooky and weird about this guy. He had a shine on his face. I said, if we hadn't been in Afghanistan, I would have said he's wearing makeup. His face just shone from the inside out as though there was a light coming out of him. And I said, it was really, really weird. Of course, I now know that to be the Noor. Furthermore, this guy didn't even walk. He was so elegant, he glided. And so I stepped aside and he glided in and sat down and I sat opposite him. And he said through the translator, what is your religion? And I thought, oh, here we go. I said, I'm a Christian. And he said, yes, but what sort of Christian? Are you a Roman Catholic? Are you a Protestant? I said, I'm a Protestant from the Church of England. And he smiled and he said, and what do you think of Islam? Oh, I said, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. And I went way over the top in my praise for this religion that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I said, do you know, the people around here are so passionate about their faith, they pray five times a day. I know because I've counted them. And he must have thought, what a stupid woman, but he held this serene smile on his face. And he said, Islam is a beautiful religion. And I said, of course it is, it's wonderful. And again, I went way over the top in my praise of Islam. And he smiled and he said, so, you would like to convert? <laughs> I could have cursed him because I realized that um, if I say yes, he will accuse me of being fickle and insincere. If I say no, he will accuse me of being offensive towards Islam. Either way, I will be hauled off and stoned. 
<laughs> so I'm thinking, how can I get out of this hole that I've put myself into? And then I said, you know, I'm so flattered by your kind offer. However, I can't make such a life-changing decision while I'm in prison. But if you let me go, I promise I will read the Quran and I will study Islam. And he smiled and he didn't react and he just rose up and glided out and Hamid went scuttling after him and he returned about 10 minutes later and he said, you're going home, you're going home on a red crescent plane. Well, I punched the air and congratulated myself for having dealt with the Milana so effectively. And within 20 minutes, I was on a Taliban Toyota truck, uh, one of their trademark vehicles, and we were heading towards Kabul. And I was so excited and, and really happy. And five hours later, we entered Kabul and we drove straight past the airport. And then I thought, well, I know that there are other Westerners in uh, Kabul. Maybe we're all going home on a red crescent plane. Of course, what I didn't realize at that point was there is a, a characteristic of, in the Afghan uh, nature, which is quite endearing in some ways, although frustrating in other ways. Afghan people do not like delivering bad news. They will tell you anything to keep you happy, but they don't like to tell you anything that will upset you. And so, as a result, I ended up in this dark, dingy corridor down this horrendous prison, everything that you would imagine a third world prison to be. And this cell door was opened, and I was told by my captors, you're going in there. And I said, no, 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 you've made a mistake. I am going home on a red crescent plane. Now you've had your joke, get me to the airport. And they'll say, no, this is no joke. You are a bad woman. You entered our country illegally. You have to be punished. What would happen if we went to your country illegally? And I thought, Belmarsh. But um, I was in a, a state of shock. I shouted and screamed when I suddenly realized that I wasn't going home on this red crescent plane. So I screamed and shouted, and another cell door opened. And six women wearing hijabs came walking out, and they said, are you from the Red Cross? And I said, how many people do you know from the Red Cross who shout and scream like that? And then I went, oh my God, I said, you, you speak English. And one said, yes, I'm Australian, these two are American, and the other three are German. And I went, oh, you're the Christian missionaries, the ones who tried to convert Muslims to Christianity. And they said, you've heard of us. These ladies had been locked up in August 2001. And I said, look, there's been a terrible mistake. I am supposed to be going home on a red crescent plane. Will you please tell these men to get me to the airport immediately, or at the very least, to put me in a hotel? I can't possibly stay in this prison. It's disgusting. They spoke in Pashto for about 10 minutes and obviously had quite an amusing conversation, but the end result was I was going nowhere that night. I was staying in this prison. And one of the German girls said, look, why don't you stay in our cell? It's a bit cramped, but you're very welcome. And I thought, well, if I ever do get out of this hellhole, I'll have an even better story now because I will have met the, these missionaries. And... I hadn't had any female company for over six days, so I just thought the prospect of, of sharing a cell with people who spoke my language, you know, would, um, would, would, uh, wouldn't be that bad. So I went into the cell, and it was really grim, about six meters by seven meters, with two sets of bunk beds, very spartan, and everything that you would imagine a third world prison to be. And I started crying and sobbing. And I said, well, they've finally broken me. They've made me cry. I'm just never going to get out of this wretched country. And now that I'm further into it, and I pulled out my cigarettes. And being a polite smoker, I said, does anybody mind if I have a cigarette? And they all said, yes. This is a no-smoking cell. <laughs> how, how can I end up in the only no-smoking cell in Asia? And I thought, what sort of Christians are they anyway? They can see how distressed I am. 
And then they said, you can go outside into the courtyard and smoke, but we are about to have a meeting. Suddenly my nicotine cravings went and I said, a meeting? And they said, yes, we have two meetings a day. And I thought, what happens round here that they have two meetings a day? <laughs> then I thought, I bet it's the escape committee. I bet they're going to talk about the tunnel that they're building. And I said, well, do you mind if I sit in? And they said, no, you're very welcome. So I sat on the edge of a bunk bed and they sat on the floor in a circle. And then they all pulled out Bibles. And I thought, oh, you know, they're in such serious trouble. These women are facing execution under Sharia law for trying to convert Muslims to Christianity. And now they're reading from their Bibles, and very loudly too. And I thought, I was kept looking at the door, thinking the Taliban are going to come in and start beating them up, or something horrible is, is going to happen. And of course, as I was to find out later in the Quran, it says that um, Muslims must protect people of the book, i.e. Christians and Jews, and must protect them, allow them to carry on their own faith. And of course, this is what the Taliban were allowing them to do. I didn't realize it. I just thought that any minute now they, they would come in and, and do something terrible. After 20 minutes of Bible reading, they then handed out sheets of paper and they started singing. And I thought, my parents, my family, my work colleagues will be imagining that I am going through all sorts of torture, but they will never believe that I have been locked up with six Christian fundamentalists. And as I stood thinking about this and feeling as though I'd been trapped in an Andy Warhol movie, the Azan or the call for prayers started on the other side of the wall, and I just thought, you know, it's like being trapped in a parallel universe. I've got Muslims on that side. I've been locked up with Christian fanatics on this side. No wonder that Milana was laughing and smiling as he went out. He probably said, feed it to the Christians. <laughs> Although I make fun of the women, they were individually and collectively tremendous. And their faith and their belief certainly got them through their ordeal. The next day, the Deputy Foreign Minister returned with his assistant, a man called Mr. Afghani, who I called the Smiling Assassin. And Mr. Afghani said, we need to ask you a few more questions. I was feeling quite angry this day. Um, my hunger strike had gone on for nine days. There was no sign of a telephone, and I didn't feel like communicating at all. So I was quite rude towards them. And in the end, I swore at them and then did something that I've never done before and never done since. I spat at them. And I walked back into my cell. And a couple of the Christian girls said, did you really spit? And I said, yes, and I know that I've crossed that wire. I've gone too far. And as if to add to all of this, the female prison officer came in and in Pashto she said to the American girls, tell the English woman she is going to be flogged because she has um, been very discourteous to important people and she has to be punished. And so this information was relayed to me and I started shaking and I couldn't even sit down, I just kept thinking. I wonder if they will flog me in public, if they'll flog me in my cell, you know, where I'm going to be flogged. And I cursed myself for doing such a, a vulgar thing. And in the end, I swore at them and then did something that I've never done before and never done since. I spat at them. And I walked back into my cell. And a couple of the Christian girls said, did you really spit? And I said, yes, and I know that I've crossed that wire. I've gone too far. And as if to add to all of this, the female prison officer came in and in Pashto she said to the American girls, tell the English woman she is going to be flogged because she has um, been very discourteous to important people and she has to be punished. And so this information was relayed to me and I started shaking and I couldn't even sit down. I just kept thinking, I wonder if they will flog me in public, if they'll flog me in my cell, you know, where I'm going to be flogged. And 
I cursed myself for doing such a, a vulgar thing. 20 minutes later, we heard the prison gate open and Heather, one of the American girls, came running in and screaming, Mr. Afghani has returned, Yvonne is going to be flogged. Three of the other Christians immediately threw themselves at my feet and grabbed hold of my clothes and started praying, Lord Jesus, please don't let Yvonne feel any pain. And all of this was going on, making me feel even worse. Just then, Mr. Afghani walked in and he had in his hand the one thing that I wanted, the one thing that I had been on hunger strike for for nine days. He had in his hand a satellite phone. And he walked in and he said, everyone can ring home today. You can ring your families and speak to your parents and your children and all of your relatives. Everyone can ring home. Apart from the English woman, she's horrible and she spat at us and has to be punished. So that was my punishment from the most brutal, evil regime in the world. That is how they chose to punish me. And I was very, very happy for the girls, but very sad for myself. And one of the German girls went to Mr. Afghani after she'd spoken to her family. And she said, please, Mr. Afghani, please let Yvonne use the telephone. He said, no, she's really horrible and she really did spit at us, you know. So later that day, Mr. Afghani returned with the prison governor and they said I was being moved. And I didn't even have time to say goodbye to my cellmates and I was taken away. And uh, we went out into the courtyard through the gate and then doubled back and went up into the stairs into the Taliban sleeping quarters. And I thought, why am I being taken here? And they opened a door into a room which had been occupied by one of the senior officers of the Taliban. And they said, you said that um, our prison was unfit for humans to live in. Do you like this room? And I must say it was very nice by Afghan standards. And they said, you will sleep here tonight and tomorrow you will go home, inshallah. Now they kept telling me from day one, tomorrow you will go home, inshallah. And I said, what is this inshallah you keep saying at the end of every sentence? It never comes true, whatever it is. And of course, I now know that inshallah means God willing, and I use it very often myself. And so I went into the room and sat on this rickety hospital bed and um, wondered if I actually was going home. Wondered why they had removed me from the Christians. Maybe uh, they were worried in case I was going to become a bad influence on model prisoners. I'm not sure, but I stayed there and after a couple of hours I was just dozing off when I heard this huge crack outside as though somebody had just ripped open the sky. The sky just exploded into um, a silver colour and it was the start of the war. That night, Britain and America dropped over 50 cruise missiles in Kabul alone. And you can hear a cruise missile from over 20 miles away. These were coming within a quarter of a mile of the prison. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and although you may think that it was a naive thing of me to think, it had never occurred to me before that bombs don't discriminate, and I suddenly realized I could be killed by a British bomb. This bomb doesn't know that I'm British. This bomb doesn't know that I'm not the enemy. And then I was thinking, well, who is the enemy? Because it's certainly not the citizens in Kabul, and... The, the, the whole experience made me realize the futility of war, made me realize that, um, that war was wrong and that bombs don't discriminate and that there is no such thing as a strategic strike or pinpoint accuracy. The next morning I thought there is no way the Taliban will let me go now. They will either kill me in revenge or use me as a hostage. Something awful is going to happen. The Taliban returned and they put me in a truck and they drove me down to Torkham and handed me over to the Pakistan authorities. I was amazed. 
I think everybody was absolutely amazed that after 10 days, even after the war had started, I emerged unscathed. And I can remember walking back across no man's land when the television lights hit me and I couldn't see anything, but I heard somebody shout, how did the Taliban treat you? And I thought of the guys in Kabul and the ones in Jalalabad. And although some areas didn't have television, most people did actually sneak a channel into their home. And I thought of them sitting round watching the television at this moment that this question was thrown to me. And they would all be sitting there going, oh no, what is she going to say about us? And then I thought of the headline writers in Fleet Street, what they would want and what, um, and what they would uh, anticipate that I would say. In fact, I was told when I got back home that the headline writers, some of them had actually tried to second guess what I was going to say and had actually put rape and abuse and torture in the headlines. And so this question was thrown at me, how did the Taliban treat you? And I thought about the 10 days that I had. And I said, they treated me with respect and courtesy. The guys in Kabul must have fallen off their chairs thinking she's bumped her head. You know, why is she suddenly being nice now? The headline writers did have to rip up their more lurid headlines. And when I arrived home, people were divided. Many people were furious. They didn't want to hear nice things about the Taliban because Bush and Blair had demonized the Taliban beyond all recognition. I'm not saying that it was the greatest regime in the world, but they had been demonized beyond all recognition. And of course, you can't drop bombs on nice people. So um, they were certainly not happy when um, they heard me say that. I began to reflect on the, the whole experience and then recalled the visit that I'd had from the Milana. And I thought, well, in the end, they did keep their word against all odds after the war had started. So really, I should keep mine. And the other thing was, the reality is, as a journalist covering the Middle East and Asia, I should have been ashamed that I knew so little about Islam. Because as we know, Islam is not just a faith, it's a way of life. And so I started reading the Quran. And someone gave me a, um, a, an English translation by Aya Safali that had an index in the back. And so I began cherry picking and I looked through all the women's issues. I wanted to find out what is in this religion that promotes the subjugation and oppression of women. And I read every single reference to women in the Quran and I could find nothing. What I did find was that the Quran makes it crystal clear that women are equal in spirituality, worth and education. Furthermore, we are praised for our child rearing and childbirth capabilities. So my guess or my interpretation is not only does this book say we are equal, it also says that we are the deluxe model of the human being. Of course, we know that the Quran is perfect, but I also needed to go out into the community and see and speak to Muslims for myself. And I went to many different Muslim communities in the UK and abroad, and I found without exception, whether they had been formally educated or not, the sisters, were opinionated, diverse, intellectually switched on, highly politicized, an amazing group of resilient women. And I feel so ashamed now because if I would see a group of sisters approaching or walking down the street three, four years ago, I would think, oh, look at those poor, subjugated, oppressed women. When they get home, they're probably chained up to the sink and beaten by their men. Of course, now when I see sisters, I'm trying to work out who is the doctor, who is the lawyer, who is studying for a profession, who's taking a PhD or an MA, who's fundraising, who's supporting her husband, who's raising a family, who's doing home education, who's doing all of this and more. And I just see a whole army of multi-talented, multi-skilled women, and you know, I salute you all. And the lesson 
that I learned was that if anyone was wearing a veil, it was me, and that was a veil of bigotry and prejudice. And I will never, ever again judge a woman's freedoms and liberties by the length of her skirt or what she wears on her head. So that was quite amazing. The other thing that I discovered about the Muslim community is that it has the most effective gossipy network that I have ever encountered. In fact, BT ought to study the Muslim network because it's quite amazing. And I could do something in Wales on a Monday afternoon and by a Tuesday morning I'd have a phone call from somebody in Karachi saying, we hear you went to Wales yesterday. People soon began to realise that um, my academic research had rapidly turned into a spiritual journey and so people would say, has she taken her shahada yet? Is she going to take her shahada? And there were a few false starts. And early last year I got a phone call, I'm sure you've all heard of the gentleman, I got a phone call from Sheikh Abu Hamza al-Masri and he said, Sister Yvonne, welcome to Islam. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. However, you're a wee bit premature. Um, I haven't taken my shahada yet, but, you know, I will get there, inshallah. And he said, well, don't be pressurized. Just take your time. Everybody is supporting you. If there is any help you need, you just have to pick up the phone and ask. We are all willing that you will get there, inshallah. And... You know, this is going to be the most important decision in your life, so don't rush into it. And I thought, this is amazing. This is the fire and brimstone um, cleric from Finsbury Park Mosque. And he's been quite sweet, really. He's been really understanding. So I said, well, thank you very much for your kind words and your support, and, and I will keep you informed as to my progress. And I was just about to close the line when he said, there's just one thing that I want to add. And I said, what's that? He said, well, if you go out tomorrow and you have an accident and are killed, you will go straight to the hellfire. <laughs> so I thanked him for his advice and closed the line, and I thought about it. And it scared me, it really did. I haven't read that much about the hellfire. I've just thought, you know, it's like Wigan. I know where it is, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> and apologies to anybody from Wigan. And um, I then tore out a copy of the Shahada, and I started to carry it round in my purse. And when I addressed meetings like this, I would say, look, if you come across an accident and somebody is shouting for two Muslim witnesses, run really quickly because it's me trying to get in before the gates close. <laughs> Happily, there was no such accident. And on June the 30th last year at 11 o'clock in the morning, I took my shahada and I joined what I consider to be the biggest and the best family in the world. And the amazing thing is, um, I don't have to tell you, but I will, is that Islam transcends all borders and nationalities and skin color and cultures. And I know that wherever I go in the world, wherever it is in the world, all I have to do is shout out and there will be brothers and sisters come running to help me. And that is a tremendous feeling. And that is a feeling that nobody else can have other than a, than a Muslim. And it really is wonderful, and that's why I still get such a kick when I talk in front of meetings like this and I go, brothers, sisters, salam alaikum, because, you know, you are all part of my family. Of course, my timing isn't brilliant. Um, it's not a great time to be a Muslim. The events of 9-11 um, have seen to that. But something incredible has begun to happen um, after 9-11. Other curious Westerners descended on bookshops and started buying copies of the Quran, and they wanted to find out, like me, what is in this book that promotes violence, that promotes the um, oppression of women. And like me, they found that it wasn't there, but what they did find was a, a tremendously inspirational faith that provided a clean, decent way of life. And so Islam has become the fastest-growing religion in the world 
And in Britain alone, we have had 14,000 converts to Islam, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you very much for listening. Dear brothers and sisters, you've just heard the final part of Sister Yvonne Ridley's Coming to Islam story. Sister Yvonne is now one of the top activists in Britain, specializing in promoting the cause of the hundreds of innocent people in both British and American jails. Here she is, giving her opinion on the character and history of the United States. Is America a peaceful nation? George Bush wants us to believe that America is a peaceful nation, a nation which loves its freedoms and liberties. And he recently described the US as the most free nation in the world. He said America was a nation built on fundamental values that reject hate, reject violence, reject murder, and reject evil. We will not tire, he said in defense of America. Well, what I would like to know is if America is such a peaceful nation, why has it been at war every single year for the last 50 years, trying to civilize countries and bring democracy across the globe? During this dark period of history, more than 20 countries have been bombed by America. Starting in 1945, China, then Korea, Guatemala, Indonesia, Cuba, Belgian Congo, Dominican Republic, Peru, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Lebanon, Libya, El Salvador, have I said Nicaragua? Iran, Libya, Panama, Iraq, Kuwait, Somalia, Croatia, Bosnia, Iran, Sudan, Afghanistan, Yugoslavia, and of course back over to, um, to Iraq again. And that list doesn't include the sort of military recklessness which is becoming common in the United States. Like in Italy in 1998, when 200 people were killed by a US warplane as they traveled in a cable car. Or in China in 2001, when a Chinese military pilot was killed by a spy plane collision. And that doesn't include the proxy bombings of Iraq by Israel in 1981 using the US-made F-15 bombers and the brand new F-16 fighter bombers either. And let us not forget that America is the only nation in the world to have used nuclear weapons on civilian populations twice. And it would be a mistake to believe not one, but two atomic weapons were dropped on civilian populations to bring a rapid end to the war because history has shown us that Japan was on the verge of capitulation, a fact which was very well known by the US president at the time. According to Admiral William D. Leahy, who was chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and President Truman's Chief of Staff, his personal advisor, he said, in being the first to use the atomic bomb, we had adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages. And this is one of their own describing this. So Winston Churchill said, it would be a mistake to suppose that the fate of Japan was settled by the atomic bomb. Her defeat was certain before the first bomb fell. America, as we all know, has weapons of mass destruction. More than 2,000 nuclear warheads and chemical and biological weapons, as well as some very nasty, top-secret weapons. One of the reasons it was going into Iraq was to find weapons of mass destruction and chemical weapons.
Of course, we know there were no WMD in Iraq. But isn't it ironic that the US Marines have been using chemical weapons to subdue the Iraqi population? But going back, 2,000 nuclear warheads. This is not the arsenal of a peaceful nation. Its weapons stockpile is greater than the collective armies of the next 27 countries. As I said before, I'm often told that I am unpatriotic to criticize America, and by doing so, I am aiding and abetting the enemy. But just who is the enemy these days? A few years ago, the Americans would have told you it was communism and communists, or anyone who threatened US national security. John Stockwell, a former senior CIA uh, station chief, estimates that the United States is responsible for the deaths of more than six million people in third world nations around the globe. US leaders blithely justify all of this under the rubric of national security. Jazakallahu khairan. Thank you for listening. Tune in again at the same time for the next part of Journey to Islam. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.